0: Hello and welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is John Schuessler, Associate Professor of International Affairs at Texas A&M University. John, welcome to the show.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
0: We're going to be talking about a a draft paper um, that you're working on with some co-authors about the set of beliefs and political ideas that make up the Restraint Coalition and what cleavages uh, this coalition has, and and whether this convergence of opinion on foreign policy from a diverse group of people can hold over time, uh, given changing conditions. Before we get into the work itself, I'm curious how you decided to embark on this inquiry in the first place. What drew you to uh, putting all this energy into this question?
1: Uh, Yeah, excellent question. uh, a few years ago, um, you know, we can start maybe uh, five years ago in 2018, um, we stood up this All Center for Grand Strategy here at the Bush School that uh, Jason Castillo and I um, co-direct. And, you know, we started to think about projects we could do together that were worth, um, you know, that would impact the grand strategy debate. And, you know, both of us had read the, the famous article by Barry Posen and Andrew Ross competing visions of U.S. grand strategy, I believe, in graduate school, which laid out in the uh, mid-90s kind of the four major alternatives that, that loosely you know, structured the grand strategy debate in the post-Cold War period and compared their logics and policy implications and uh, I guess the initial instinct was, well, nothing like that has been done in a while. That might be worth pursuing. Now, in the meantime, um, some friends, Paul Avey, Jonathan Markowitz, Robert Reardon, published their own update, I would say, of Posen and Ross in the Texas National Security Review, which is outstanding. So um, I, um, I guess we were bound to be scooped on that dimension. But we, a, a related instinct we had was... You know, nothing like this has really been done for restraint. Um, restraint tend to be treated as just one of you know four alternatives in the grand strategy debate, as if it were one kind of coherent, unified position. And uh so I guess, you know, from this initial impulse to revisit Posen and Ross. And after we started to talk to uh, our other co-authors, Miranda Priebe and Brian Rooney at RAND, who were doing their own work on, on how restraint should be implemented, we decided to kind of just focus on restraint and, and do a posit and Ross of restraint, if you will.
0: I know you guys tie this, in the paper, you guys tie this coalition uh, back to the opposition to the Iraq war, I think. Um, but it didn't obtain this particular label of restraint, um, at least in in the politics, uh, until pretty recently. I think there's a separate development in elite discussions of foreign policy and uh, particularly in in DC. And it's begun to trickle down to politics somewhat, um, where there's now a space for restrainers to be a serious part of the discourse uh, in a way that was not true maybe a handful of years ago. What, how do you think about that phenomenon? How, how do you explain the emergence of this new thing?
1: Well, this kind of gets at a big issue that shatter, shadows over the paper. Um, the four of us, the authors, Jason and myself, Miranda and Brian, we are best positioned to speak to the ideas that kind of are percolating among restrainers. And and you know I'm sure we'll talk later about what those ideas are. What you probably need to fully address your question, John, is a intellectual historian and as you know, an analyst of political or social movements who can kind of piece together how these ideas get picked up at certain times, circulated, how coalitions are built um, in the Beltway and beyond. Um, you know, to promote certain ideas and 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 how they get traction. Um, I I think what we're comfortable saying is that, uh, you know, again, to return to Posen and Ross, right from the get-go in the post-Cold War period, and there was some of this during the Cold War too, there's already um, a set of ideas out there calling for a more restrained American approach to the world. I mean, this goes back a long way. And then the question is, you know, how did these ideas kind of become more or less salient in the elite or public debate? And I do think it's safe to say that the Iraq war helped to break open some space for those ideas to get more traction than they had. And I think, you know, to to speak to the paper, partly because people of different ideological persuasions all could identify reasons that you know the Iraq War was a serious mistake, but it's symptomatic of something broader. the The American approach to grand strategy is over militarized, too aggressive, um, so on and so forth. Um, uh, so I think you know, certainly the Iraq War, and, and it, it obviously it had effect on on both parties. For example, Barack Obama, uh, you know, owes something to the Iraq war for his rise. I think Donald Trump's breakthrough on the Republican side owes at least a bit to, you know, developments in Iraq and later Afghanistan. So um, you're going to need a different kind of, you know, analyst than what we are to kind of do full justice to this. But we do feel that um, these concrete developments helped create a space, as you said, for ideas to kind of receive more salience in the debate than they had before.
0: So again, before we dive in, um, maybe another throat clearing question. One of the challenges I think that you guys face um, is that you're kind of forced, as you just referenced, to talk about different political ideologies or groupings uh, with labels that are imprecise at best, right? Uh, I mean, political labels like the one you guys use—conservative, nationalist, populist, progressive, etc.—political labels really serve as heuristics for people. You know, heuristics are like little mental shortcuts. It's an oversimplified cognitive image, um, which represents a much more complicated concept. And these heuristics rely on a whole lot of priors that differ from person to person. Obviously. And so sometimes I think political labels like that can be more trouble than they're worth because people don't agree on the meaning of the words. Like conservative, you obviously have to use this word a lot in your paper, I don't know what that refers to, you know. There's a certain context in like the pre George W Bush world where that meant something and then the George W Bush world where that meant something and then now who knows? You know, there's something happening on the in, on the right side of the political spectrum in this country that Jumbles these labels even further. So, and by the way, I should say full disclosure to the audience: you interviewed me and cite, cited some of my work in the paper, and I inevitably get put into a category, you know, which I I would never self-describe that way. But I guess my question is: did you guys feel like you ran up against this problem of we're trying to categorize this, we're trying to understand it, but it means we got to put these clumsy Labels and fit people into them.
1: Oh, absolutely! I mean, I'll say a few things. One, um, you know, in my day job, I teach IR theory to uh, professional master students, and I'm always telling them the whole purpose of of theory is to simplify, simplify, simplify. And you're going to do violence to the world when you do that. But but that's what theory's for. Well, then to do a project like this where I'm talking to contemporaries, and you know kind of simplifying, simplifying, simplifying. Well, they can push back in real time and say, I don't think of myself this way. And so to give the concrete example you alluded to, you know, my initial task on this project was to kind of think about and describe the, quote, libertarian approach to restraint. The problem was the people that I had identified as, quote, libertarian restrainers many of them would not and did not self-identify that way. Um, I had inferred their libertarianism from things like working for Cato or uh, publishing you know, uh, analysis under the Cato heading, and um, that was not a sound inference. Um, now, we had to push back a bit in our own way because I just, as you said, I, I, the kinds of people we were interviewing and dealing with um, there, I think each one would have come up with their own particular label for their belief system, and it would have become hopelessly complicated. So we had to impose some order on things. But it it, it is problematic. And I certainly had to make several adjustments along the way to my section on conservative uh, approaches to restraint based on pushback from people saying, well, this is the way I think about conservatism, or I don't identify that way. Um, we should have known this, right? Like I was trained in the realist tradition or the IR theory tradition at the University of Chicago. There are as many forms of realism as there are realists. I should, you know, I should have known the same thing would happen here. But um, it's a little jarring to encounter it in real time as you as you interview people.
0: So one more thing uh, before we dive into the substance of the article and. That's what I think we should just maybe set the table with a quick explanation of restraint and deep engagement. These are the two primary grand strategies that you kind of deal with in the paper. Uh, most of the audience knows, I'm sure, but just uh, articulate what these are.
1: Sure. Um, and apologies to my deep engager friends if, uh, you know, if I don't nail down their position in the way they would. But let me start with deep engagement. Um, so, deep engagement in a way is more straightforward than restraint um, uh, because it's a long standing tradition in American grand strategy, and we would argue the dominant one um, for some time now. And it asks the United States uh, to be the primary security provider in the core regions of the world um, Europe, East Asia, the Middle East. And from being the core security provider, all sorts of benefits flow, according to deep engagers. Of course, in the security realm, um, you know, uh, potential peer competitors are kept down, allies are reassured, security dilemmas are mitigated, proliferation is contained, um, so on and so forth. But also other kinds of benefits, right? As um, By by acting as the primary security provider, you gain some diplomatic leverage, you gain some economic leverage, and it's kind of a virtuous circle that forms from this for American interests. Restraint, uh, the four of us, the authors, went back and forth a lot about how to concisely describe restraint because, um, in a way, it's a negative position. Uh, It's it's really an anti-deep engagement position that says the United States should stop short of being the primary security provider in one or more core regions because the costs outstrip the benefits, contra deep engagers. Um, that might be because um, you know other major powers can push back against the United States as a deep engager can balance against it. Um, This can lead to crises and potentially in the worst case wars. uh, Deep engagement might actually encourage proliferation for related reasons. Uh, It might entangle the United States in conflicts it doesn't need to be in. It might uh, lead to expenditures on defense that are not necessary, taking resources away from other more pressing needs. It might negatively impact the domestic body politic and our freedoms, um, so on and so forth. So um, one critique of restraint is it's not a positive position, but I I actually am at peace with that. (laughs) I think it's perfectly okay to say there's this dominant way we've been doing things and there are flaws with that, and we should consider doing less. Um, that is a positive program in its own way. It's just defined in opposition to something we're currently doing.
0: So let's dig into the first question that you guys set out to explore, which, are, which is uh, what are the different sets of beliefs and political ideas that make up uh, the restraint coalition and that lead people to uh, restraint? And you deal with three pathways, the realist, the conservative, and the progressive pathway. Let's go one by one. Uh, You write that not all realists are restrainers. And I like this short, succinct line because being familiar with the literature, I have long had an intuitive sense for where these lines are, but it's always been pretty difficult to explain to the uninitiated how, say, Barry Posen and Henry Kissinger can be under the same tent. Uh, And it can be hard to explain, Um, but realists tend to emphasize low-threat environments um you know they have certain beliefs about balancing and nukes and alliances uh talk about the realist pathway to restraint
1: sure um the first thing i'd say is for those of us in the academy or the think tank world i think for some time the realist pathway to re- Restraint just got acquainted with restraint, because some of the most prominent writings, you know, in the early going were by realists like Barry Posen, who you mentioned, and others. Um, and so, in a number of these synthetic treatments I talked about earlier, like Posen and Ross, um, and and others often restraint was just described in kind of realist terms. So one thing we were trying to do was to put down the realist position, but then say there are other ways of getting to this outcome. Uh, As far as the realists, I I think, you know, the realist inclination toward restraint flows from a few, you know, simple facts, um, as they would put it. One is, and, and, and I think by far the most important the United States is very, very secure, um, probably the most secure great power in history by virtue of, A, its raw power. So as John Mearsheimer has argued in Tragedy of Great Power Politics, um, there's only been one, quote, regional hegemon um, in the system, in, in, in history, at least as you know far back as the modern system, and that's the United States in the Western Hemisphere. So the United States doesn't have to deal with other great powers in its neighborhood the way a China would or a Russia would or a Germany or a France or something like that. And that's very important um, because it means we don't have to engage in some of the kind of balancing and power politics that realists would normally prescribe when you're in a rough neighborhood. So when you're very powerful, and then B, when you're separated from other great powers, by long distances and especially water, which inhibits the ability to project military power, um, this again leads to a a surplus of security. And so then the question is, um, how ambitious does the United States really need to be um, in terms of its grand strategy to remain secure, if you define security in kind of straightforward terms as insulation from attack? or something like that. And and the realist answer is you don't have to be very ambitious. Um, Of course, you may want to prevent another regional hegemon like you from emerging, because if you can kind of meddle around in other's neighborhoods, because you're a regional hegemon, maybe they could do the same in your neighborhood if they were a regional hegemon. So you might want to prevent that. Um, But for the most part, that's the kind of threat you should be focusing on, um, not you know, providing stability in all the core regions in perpetuity. Um, so this is the key, I think, break with deep engagers. Deep engagers want to um, underwrite peace in the core regions. They're worried that if war breaks out, the United States will get dragged in. Offshore balancers are a little more risk, are more risk acceptant in this dimension. They're willing to risk at least some war um, as long as that war doesn't yield another hegemon that could meddle around in the Western Hemisphere. So that I think, again, there there are variations on this. We can bring in talk of nuclear weapons and deterrence, but really the most important part is the United States is very secure and doesn't have to do much to remain secure. And in addition, if the United States does more than it needs to do, that could lead to pushback from other major powers, and that could lead to war. So if the whole point of grand strategy is to minimize the risks of of some catastrophic war, the last thing you want to do is go, go out and look for fights with other major powers. And the restraint, the realist restraint worry is that you do that when you deep engage too aggressively, as as perhaps we're seeing in Ukraine and and potentially in in East Asia or something like Taiwan.
0: So how do you unpack the conservative pathway to restraint?
1: I think this was our our hardest road to hoe because of what you talked about earlier, um, what it means to be conservative has evolved over time. But um, I think where we started, which was really taking kind of libertarian and Cato type writings on grand strategy seriously, um, our starting point was this notion that, uh, you know, conservatives traditionally have greatly feared the emergence of a garrison state in the United States. They, They want the central government to remain limited in its power and reach. And war is a boon to the state, and commitment short of war are a boon to the state, and so there's always been a wariness of an ambitious grand strategy if it's going to augment the power of the state, in the form of higher taxes, more bureaucracy, a large standing army, a military military-industrial complex, eroded civil liberties, um, etc. And so. Uh, and this is why I think what we call classical conservatives, the ones concerned with the garrison state um, have such an attachment to the kind of thinking and ideas of the founders because this is something that the founders were very attuned to, having just broken away from the old world and the kind of absolutist monarchies there and trying to think about how you know the American experiment and liberty could go differently uh, so I think. One big difference with the realists is conservatives. You know, all politics is local, right? They're. Pri- I do think they're primarily focused on um, the how should politics and society be ordered at home, and then deriving implications for grand strategy from that. Um, in the process, they do end up converging with the realists on a number of. International politics, foreign policy points about how threatened the United States or not, about you know the risks of deep engagement, you know, uh, and so on and so forth. But I think the motivation is different.
0: While we're on the topic, and we've sort of mentioned this a couple times, and it's not directly addressed in your paper, but I could actually see the utility of a of a section on this, uh, trying to discuss it. Um, What's your assessment of like what's happened to the GOP uh, in terms of foreign policy in recent years? Because you did mention earlier that the Iraq war was probably a major part of that evolution. But there's still this like uneasy um, dance going on between the traditional Republican approach of being more hawkish and increasing numbers uh, of people in the ranks. Uh, being skeptical about foreign adventures. So, uh, I mean, how do you view what's, hap- what's happening to the Republican Party on foreign policy?
1: Well, it's an excellent question. I do think it's the single most difficult thing we've had to grapple with in this paper um, because the conservative movement or party is so divided on not only foreign policy, but a number of more fundamental questions. Um, so we we make the argument that there has been a change um you know when we talk about the classical conservatives who we argue until recently were kind of the the predominant group um we do see them as rooted in the in the in the classical liberal tradition that's why we call them classical conservatives that's where the the concern with the Garrison state comes from um clearly there is a less liberal strand of thinking on the right that maybe has always been there, but I think is more ascendant now um, that's skeptical or that's more comfortable with a powerful state if it's used to kind of promote your values at the expense of other values that you see as harmful so um, I am not an expert on all these strands of thinking on the right, but um, you know when you think about uh My alma mater, Notre Dame, Patrick Deneen, um, a political philosopher there who's written a few tracks openly criticizing liberalism and saying, you know, the right needs to fully embrace kind of the common good defined in, in a kind of cultural sense and then use the state to promote that. That doesn't resonate with what we saw with a lot of our conservatives as we got started on this project. So I don't I don't think this is about foreign policy. I think this is about um, what the right should prioritize. You know, small government or promoting a certain set of social values more aggressively. Now, one qualification: uh, Peter Beinart had a column in the New York Times yesterday about you know a lot of the China bashing you see on the right, and and he makes the point that there's. continuity here that there's always been an Asia first, uh, strand on the, uh, you know, tendency on the right going back to the cold war. And, um, you know, we're seeing that again today with, uh, if there's one thing the right can agree on, it's that China's threatening and bad. Um, so we, again, we're kind of picking up a serious change over time in right approaches toward restraint. Um, the classical conservative one is, is the main one we talk about, but then there's this conservative nationalist one, which we're a little less confident is fully bought into restraint. I think there's definitely a lot of leeriness of entanglements and in institutions and things like that among the nationalists, but there's also a kind of hawkishness, a don't mess with me or we'll bloody your nose instinct um, that it doesn't seem too restrained. Whereas the classical conservatives and especially the libertarians were much more principled and consistent in their restraint because it was deeply rooted in this desire to kind of keep the state limited. And once you kind of abandon that commitment, you know, it's difficult to be more consistently restraint oriented if you're a conservative.
0: And what about the final ideological camp, the, the progressives, what's uh, their path to restraint? They have differences with realists and conservatives. Uh, how, how do they view all the different issues in, in this?
1: Yeah. So um, I, I've learned a lot from my, my co-author, Brian Rooney, on this, who who did uh, all the, the legwork on this part of the paper. Uh, so I'll give credit to him. Um, so they really are Uh, the most different. So one, one difficulty you have even referring to a restraint coalition is that, um, uh, there's some overlap between realists and conservatives, but it's difficult to find a lot of overlap in terms of first principles between realist conservatives and progressives. And I think it's really the progressives who, who chart out the most dramatic departure. Again. Their restrainers, the ones we're talking about, because they do want a less militarized American grand strategy, but the reasons are very different. Um, and I think the most important um, that I've learned is they have a more gl- they have a more global conception of the American interest than realists or conservatives tend to have. So in their minds. Um, you know, the core problems in America and beyond are things like inequality, you know, kleptocracy, uh, racial and other forms of injustice, and then climate change. And these are problems that span borders and require solidarity across borders to address. Um, and so, you know, there isn't the same sense that the United States is very secure and can hunker down and mind its own business more. It's more that the the problems that that should be orienting American grand strategy are just not ones that lend themselves very well to kind of deep engagement, forward presence, you know, deterrence of, 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 of rivals. It's more about how can the United States stake out a progressive position on these big challenges, and then cooperate with others diplomatically and economically to start to kind of make the world a better place? Again, am I doing full justice to it? Absolutely not, but that's my best take on what's distinctive.
0: Um, there's a, uh, If this is too specific to your colleague who handled this section of the paper, just let me know. But um, there's a second group of progressives who you guys call peacemakers. And you say they seek a transformation of U.S. grant strategy on a different scale. This group eventually wants to establish a system of collective security. Can you tell me more about that? What's their vision for collective security and how would you relate it to restraint?
1: Yeah, it's a fair, fair question. So, um, you know as brian was working up this section uh van jackson very prominent uh, in progressive circles on grand strategy came out with a very important piece in security studies laying out three types of progressive restrainers um and 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 we adopted some of his categories one of which is peacemakers um and if i understand correctly um uh, you know the, the peacemakers are, are the most ambitious in terms of envisioning a, a large-scale transformation of you know the way security is provided in the international system away from any kind of you know power politics and balancing to, as you said, collective security, and of course, you know that would require it's a wager, if you will, that um, you know if the, if the United States sets a good example by not threatening others, and those and others in turn reciprocate by kind of de-escalating their own militarized policies, over time we can find some common ground, and the, the system will literally be transformed and peace will prevail. Um, and so in that way, it's the most visionary, I think, uh, among the progressives, obviously the hardest to implement, um, or... or requires the most optimism or hope that, you know, the major powers can get over this tendency to see each other as threats and to, you know, kind of form uh, a system where, you know, war and balancing are kind of put in the rearview mirror. And that has always been a progressive or liberal aspiration. Um, It's why liberalism is very attractive. It it holds out the promise of mitigating the worst effects of anarchy and changing the way international politics operates. And I think most liberals would share the view that that has happened to some extent. I think peacemakers are the most optimistic that we can go the rest of the way and, um, again, leave power politics in the past.
0: You guys write, U.S. strategy in East Asia. Especially towards China, is the biggest area of disagreement among restrainers, and that these disagreements are likely to grow. Uh, Talk a bit more about why you think that is.
1: Sure. Um, Well, you know, to go back to where we started, uh, the Iraq War and the war on terror is what allowed people of a realist and a conservative and a progressive orientation to converge on some desire for more restraint. So there was widespread recognition that, you know, Iraq under Saddam Hussein was not a serious or urgent or pressing threat, that it was wrong to invade, um, that the consequences were bad for the region and bad for the United States, um, so in a way that was a quote easy case right if if you were a restrainer to say this is a symptom of something gone awry uh when you're dealing with a rising great power and and perhaps one that that could be a a, a quote potential hegemon one day it forces um restrainers of different persuasions to ask themselves whether they can still remain committed to restraint. So if you're a realist, as I talked about earlier, the one threat you know that might force you to consider leaving restraint behind and committing to something like deep engagement where you're very active in a region and balancing is the rise of a potential hegemon. Uh, now, China's growth prospects are murkier than they were when these debates were, were picking up steam. And so that complicates the picture. But that's the kind of threat that realists you know, are, are attuned to. They, they they define threats in power terms. And China um, is maybe the most poten- significant potential threat in power terms we've seen in some time. So that might lead some realists to kind of revisit whether they can remain committed to restraint. And, Um, John Mearsheimer, who I, I, you know, my dissertation advisor at the University of Chicago is most prominent and kind of, he's been calling for some balancing effort against China since the end of the Cold War. So he's been consistent on that. Yet he's often thought of as a restrainer because of his opposition to the Iraq war. Um, so those are the realists. Now, if you're a conservative, I just said, you know, if there's one thing a lot of GOP candidates can agree on today, it's you know, that China is very threatening. And I think there are some realist reasons for that, that I just mentioned. Uh, Elbridge Colby, who's a prominent foreign policy thinker on the right, um, has argued in a a recent book and in a number of other venues that, you know, all American efforts should be focused on, uh, military efforts should be focused on dealing with a potential war with China. Even you know, and that's going to mean kind of relegating Europe to a clear second priority. So that's that's very common on on the right. But beyond beyond the realist factors, you know, I think conservatives, you know, again, let me set aside those who are just most committed by far to a small state. But you know, those who have nationalist instincts, those who care about American prestige. I think they're going to have difficulty with a China that's willing to push back against the United States diplomatically if there's some kind of crisis where it becomes a test of nerves or a test of strength. Conservatives who otherwise, I think, might be comfortable with restraint are going to have trouble being restrained toward China because it's going to be a clear affront to American national honor and prestige and resolve and things like that and conservatives often react badly to, to open affronts to those things um, and finally the progressives uh, again I think there are cross-cutting pressures some progressives really you know prioritize cooperating with China because how else are we going to address climate change for example however progressives are in their core committed to, you know, the advancement of, of, of the, you know, human good and liberty. And China is antithetical to a lot of that in terms of it, the way it treats its population, and minorities, and um, the way it bullies neighbors and things like that, where any progressive is going to have a hard time, um, you know, not wanting to change, you know, China over time into a more benign actor. And so that, and want to stand up for democracies that it's bullying. So that's going to be a challenge for progressives to deal with those cross pressures. And for all these reasons, I think it's not that there won't be any restrainers left. It's just that the rise of China is going to divide restrainers. Some will remain committed to restraint and others will kind of succumb or, 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 you know, embrace more hawkish positions toward China on realist, conservative, or progressive grounds, if you will.
0: This might be a little tangent, but um, because it's so important about that, that China is like the, the biggest disagreement within this uh, coalition, if we can call it that. And since uh, your dissertation advisor is kind of representative of the offensive realist uh, camp which, which uh, has a disagreement here, one of the things I have trouble pulling out of that work is some kind of endgame. You know, like, they tend to talk about the U.S.-China rivalry as a deterministic thing, and there's not much we can do about it. And the tensions are going to rise, and the economic warfare is going to rise, and maybe there'll be conflicts. Um uh, d- Give them better credit than I can in the, in this uh, moment. Like, what is it that they are actually proposing be done to resolve the problem that they identify?
1: I mean, again, I the the realists are a variegated lot, and and John Meersheimer is on kind of one end of the spectrum in in believing that you know if China continues to grow and and truly is in a position to dominate its region, all that's left to do is to oppose it, to balance against it. Um, his book is called The Tragedy of Great Power Politics. So there—it's not you're not going to find in his thinking something that looks neat or tidy or satisfactory. That's his whole point, that there's a tragic dimension here that China will want to dominate its region, its neighbors in the United States will want to stop it. And the best we can hope for is the kind of hurting stalemate we saw in the first Cold War you know, where the United States and the Soviet Union at least come to kind of recognize each other's red lines, although there's always danger lurking. Um, You know, there's uh, proxy wars, which are very destructive for those places that are being fought over, but there's not Armageddon. And I just taught, you know, last week, Ken Waltz's theory of international politics, which uh, you know, a key part of it in policy terms is there are many worse things than a bipolar cold war if you're worried about peace and stability. So, yes, unfortunately, realists being realists, kind of the best you can hope for here, assuming China's continued rise and, and some run for regional hegemony is something like a cold war. Uh, that is the end game. Um and a lot well, of the people, problem yeah, la, the, last,
0: the last Cold War had a had a feature, but you know, our opponent had a particular feature which made a Cold War and a containment policy make sense, which was that its economic system was contradictory and would eventually lead to its collapse. I don't think anyone's really saying that about China. So again, Cold War perpetually <laughs> what?
1: <laughs> well, um, of course, before the Soviet Union collapsed, there was it kind of came as a surprise because there was an agreement in the West on, you know, how long this would take. I mean, I, you're right, though, from the beginning, with the original containment policy, there was a sense that the Soviet system would crack up eventually if contained. And so that's a fair point. Is there a similar anticipation this time around, if it goes in this direction? You know, what do we expect to happen? But to me, I mean, this is partly a realism problem, but it's also partly an American thinking problem in that, you know, we have a hard time even tolerating or accepting this notion that you might have to find rough ways to coexist with others that you'll never be on the same page with for very long stretches of time. We kind of like victory scenarios, where we defeat the other side in some way, or they come around to our position, and, I'm, and I get that. I mean, um, you know, uh, you don't want to envision a world that's perpetually marred by competition, but that, I do think the realists force us to at least consider that possibility that um, you know, what we need to do is avert the worst outcomes, not aim for the best, if you will.
0: So as we close out here, you've been saying, and you and you guys make the point in the paper that uh, there are reasons to expect this coalition—again, if we can call it that—to not last uh, over time. Um, Does that mean that you think that this ultimately is not going to have an effect on policy? This uh, this coalition, this this sort of gradual evolving change in the way Americans understand their foreign policy and what preferences they have about it will that continue even if this sort of dc connected coalition uh, among activists and concerned parties doesn't um what will it actually take to have the restraint view have an impact on policy
1: i mean my sense is there will always be room for restraint in the american grand strategy debate because it's tapping into real issues. Um, even at the height of the Cold War, there were there were thinkers on the left and the right, even if they weren't, you know, widely embraced, who pointed out the problems with containment, um, who identified the garrison state problem from the right, or the injustice problem from the left. Um, and as Stephen Wertheim has reminded us in some of his writing recently, you know, uh The prospect of major war really focuses the mind, and I I think that's the primary reason restraint will continue to enjoy a fair amount of traction. Because, um, I mean, it's a bit paradoxical. On the one hand, the rise of these or the renewed salience of these great power threats um, is is poses a stress test for restraint, as we call it, because some of us that are currently aligned will break away on these issues. On the other. Those of us who remain in the restraint camp have very good reasons to remain, which is, you know, great power war is a possibility now in a way that it wasn't before. And this is really what we're here to do is to think of, promote, however you want to put it, ways to avert that outcome. Um, I say this a lot to students, and I don't know how many share this kind of socialization, but you know, the thing that had the biggest impact on me personally was sitting through lectures about the world wars at the University of Chicago. You know, I'm not, I'm a Midwesterner. I'm not very complicated. Most of my work since then has been, how can we not do that again? Any of us. Um, Now the deep engagers would say, yes, we, that's what we want to prevent too. I've just been convinced that the best way to stay out of that is to stay out of it. And so, um, I recognize that, you know, some of my fellow realists are going to are going to, you know, form new coalitions uh, as China rises, for example. But some of us will continue to warn about the perils of a great power war and why the United States should do everything in its power to avert that.
0: John Schuessler, thanks for taking the time today.
1: I really appreciate it. Thank you.